Philippians chapter 1, we are continuing our series entitled Worthy of the Gospel. As we go through the book of Philippians, learning the lessons that God has for us through this book, this letter to the Philippian church that the Apostle Paul penned uh, close to 2,000 years ago. This letter is not just a letter to a, a church, it is God's very words, and God's very words to us today. So we are continuing in our series, we've been following along, learning from Paul and learning from his example. Last week we talked about the motto of Paul's life, to live is Christ, to die is gain. And we learned from his example as he oriented his life that way and the fruit it produced. This week we're going to continue in verses 27 to 30 and, and learn more and listen to Paul some more and ultimately learn from God as he speaks to us through his living word. Glad you're here today. My name is Paul Buckley and I'm the pastor here. And, and it is our prayer for you and for each one here today that we would hear from God himself. He speaks to us through his word. He ministers in the power of his spirit when we gather in his name, he's here with us. It's a wonderful privilege. So let's pray and ask that he would do just that, that he would speak to us, that his Holy Spirit would minister in power and we would experience his presence. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for the amazing truth that where two or more of your people come together, there are you in our midst. And, and that certainly, Lord, is for for situations where there needs to be discernment, as that context talks about in Matthew, but it's beyond that. It's really the experience of your people. It's our experience today. We thank you, Lord, for this amazing privilege that you are here with us. And you're here to bless. You're here to teach. You're here to correct. You're here to encourage and empower. And you do that through your word. You are a speaking God. You speak things, and they are and you speak through your word to create life and to lead us. And you care about us as a church. You care about us as individuals. You want us to know you. you. You want us to live in your truth. And according to your gospel, you want us to minister in your name. You want all these things. And, Lord, we know because of this, because of your great mercy, not because of my ability, Lord. I am aware of my inability, not because of our worth in any way, which is really nothing before you. It can never compare to your worth but because of your mercy and grace and love for us. We can trust that you will speak to us. So do that, Lord. Speak and lead us and glorify your name, we pray. Amen. Amen. Philippians chapter 1, I'll start in verse 27 through verse 30. Paul continues to encourage and exhort his dear friends, and he says in verse 27, Only let your manner of life be worthy of, of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. 
engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. God's word, Philippians 1, 27 through 30. The story is told of a lighthouse keeper who kept a lighthouse along a bleak coast, and he was given enough oil for a month and told to keep the light burning every night in his lighthouse. One day, a woman came by and asked for oil so that her children could stay warm. Then a farmer came. His son needed oil for a lamp so he could read. And another came who needed oil for an engine. And the keeper saw that each one was a worthy request, and so he measured out just enough oil to satisfy each one. Near the end of the month, the tank and the lighthouse ran dry. That night, the beacon was dark, and a ship crashed on the rocks. More than 100 lives were lost in that shipwreck. And when a government official investigated, the man explained what he had done and why. And the official said, you were given one task only. It was to keep that light burning. Everything else was secondary. There is no defense for your actions. In our passage today, the Apostle Paul is calling to us like that lighthouse keeper to do only one thing. Only, only, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. He's commissioning us, and through him, God is commissioning, he's commissioning the Philippians, and through him, God is commissioning us to this one thing, this one call, this, this one gift, this one task, this highest priority in life. And all other tasks, all other things must fall in their proper place behind this main, this one task, this only task. The New International Version, instead of saying only, says, whatever happens, live a life worthy of of the gospel. That's the call of our passage today. That's God's call to us. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. A question as we embark into this passage today, will at the end of your life, will God find you as the lighthouse keeper who has not only pursued that your manner of life would be worthy of the gospel? Will you be out of oil? God's call and his encouragement and his provision in this passage, in his word, is that we would only let the manner of our lives be worthy of the gospel. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about what it means to be, to live a life worthy of the gospel, to let the manner of your life be worthy of the gospel. What does that look like? Well, where should we start? Well, I think we need to start with what the gospel is. What is the gospel? What is this thing called the gospel? What do we mean by the gospel? And it might seem kind of silly. Why, why are we doing this? This is something I learned in Sunday school. I, I've known what the gospel is since I was a little kid. It's simple. It's straightforward. Why do you need to go over it? It's, it's actually insulting my intelligence for you to review this again and again. Well, the reality is, no matter how intelligent, no matter how perceptive, no matter how good our memories might be, there is a constant drift away from the gospel, a constant drift away from the gospel, as simple as it is. And the reasons for that are a few. Uh, one reason is that in us, uh, even if you're a believer, you have the Spirit of God in you, there's new life in you, there's still the old flesh, the old man, the sinful nature in you. There's this 
fallen humanity that is on us and with us till the day we go to be with the Lord. And what a wonderful thing that is for a believer to be finally rid of this body of flesh. But, but that sinful nature is with us. And that sinful nature hates the gospel. It doesn't want us to remember the gospel. It doesn't want us to, to, to reflect on the gospel. It doesn't want us to, to meditate. It doesn't want us to read his word. It doesn't want us. It, it hates the gospel. That's in us, and it's fighting against. It's saying in, in subtle ways and in direct ways, forget about it. The world as well hates the gospel. The world, and speaking of fallen humanity, not the world in, in, in the other ways that the Scripture speaks of it, but the world as a term to, to speak of fallen humanity, as humanity in their fallen state hates the gospel. That's, that's us as a group. It's, got, it's people as a group apart from God. The world hates the gospel. So the world, our culture, and the aspects of our culture that are fallen will fight against the gospel, and it will, it will lead us away from the gospel. And it will do that in direct ways and indirect ways. Sometimes it comes in just subtly to say, well, well what about this version of the gospel, which is no gospel, and tricks us. And of course, the, the enemy of our souls, the devil himself and his minions, they hate the gospel. And they will work in spiritual attack and whatever they're allowed to do to, to work against the gospel. So us remembering the gospel is oh so important because we drift away from it. We must remember it. We must review it. And, and as simple as it might be, we must be reminded. And really, much of, much of our Christian life, much of our celebration as a church is just simply doing that, just remembering the gospel. What was our communion time really about today? God gives us this gift of this sacrament of communion. What is it ultimately about? It's about remembering the gospel. And as we remember it, the Spirit of God ministers to us in and through that, the celebration of that sacrament and in and through music. And we encounter God and our souls are renewed. We remember we're forgiven, we're beloved. All our righteousness is in Christ and that he's with us and the Spirit of God supports and strengthens us in him and in our new life. So really we're called to remember the gospel. I remember actually uh, being somewhat horrified to hear an audio clip some years ago of an interview that was done at a convention. It was a convention of Christian booksellers. These are people who would be professing Christians. And a, the, the gentleman, actually theologian Michael Horton, just went around and asked a simple question of the various exhibitors. He said, could you just tell me what is the gospel? What is the gospel? Simple question. And if you ever have ever heard the audio clip, which you can get online, uh, it's, it's disturbing. Now, be careful here, because it isn't so much, oh, those dumb people forget the gospel. It should be, oh, we dumb people forget the gospel and drift. And of the 25 people he asked, only one or two, maybe three, answered correctly. Let me just give you some of the responses. Some, when asked, what is the gospel, one person said, well, it's not really tangible. It's uh, personal. Uh, you must find it within yourself. Another answered, the gospel, it means you love the Lord, you love yourself, and you love other human beings. Still others said things like, and this one's not far off, it means good news. It does, but there's more to it. Another, uh, what is the gospel? You do your best. That's the gospel. These are, these are legitimate responses. Another, I don't know. All I know is that I love the Lord with all my heart. That was their response. Now, there may be some truth in all those answers, but, but really none of them are near what the gospel is, that good news, they're starting to touch on it, but, but it's way off, and that's where we go. That's where we go when we're not reminded of the gospel. That's where we go when we, when we don't meditate on the gospel. 
And, and then there's all sorts of things that fall from that. If we don't keep the gospel fresh in our minds and fresh in our hearts, there's just no way to live a, a life, a manner of life worthy of the gospel. You can't do it. And no wonder at times we wonder about our lives, how did I get in this place? And let me tell you simply, it's this, you forgot the gospel. Your power to live a manner of life worthy of the gospel comes from remembering the gospel and reflecting on the gospel. It is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. And that word salvation certainly means being rescued from your sin and made a child of God, but it means more than that. It means your ultimate salvation, your ultimate ultimately being delivered to the Lord's presence. And so your life as a Christian depends on the power of the gospel, just as it depended for that first day for you to come to know Christ. Your everyday experience, your ability to live a life worthy of the gospel comes from remembering and living in the gospel. And the gospel is, at its simple, in its simplest form, this, from 1 Corinthians 15, Christ died for our sins. Christ died for our sins. That's the core of the gospel, the core of the, this good news. And gospel means good news. Gospel is an old English word, and I'm not sure if it always serves us to use that word, but it's captured in our scriptures that way. But it simply means good news, good news, important news, uh, a proclamation of good news. It's, a, it's an announcement of great news, of, a, of the news of a king, the good news and the good news is this, that Christ, who is the king, that word Christ means king, and he's the ultimate king. He is God the Son. He is, he is God who's come to earth and became a man, born a baby, lived a righteous life, fulfilled all righteousness, earned the right ultimately in his death on the cross to be the king of kings and lord of lords, that this king, this Christ, died for our sins, our sins, those things uh, both in who we are and what we do, that, that are active rebellion against God. And there's all sorts of forms of sins. Often when we think of sins, we think of the hardcore ones that are obvious, obvious sins because of how immediately destructive, how clearly contrary to Scripture they are. But, but those aren't the only sins. The, sometimes the, the worst sins are the sins of self-righteousness, the sins where we want to establish our own worth before God, that we think we've done the right things, we've been good boys and girls, and therefore God should accept us, and we fail to see just how far short our lives fall of his good and righteous standard. We are blind to the depth of our sin. So there's, there's sin in all those different forms. These are offenses against God. They are cosmic rebellion. They are insults to the Lord. They are attitudes and actions of, of rebellion and, and self-sufficiency. And when we Look at those sins in light of the goodness and glory of God. When we truly see God for who he is and see our sins for what they are, we will understand how horrible they are and how necessary it was that God himself die for our sins. And in his death, he offered up his perfect life in our stead. I mean, his life was glorious. It's not a better life. He, he loved the Lord. He obeyed the Lord to the point of death on the cross. He, he lived his every moment for the glory of his Father in love for God and in love for others. He fulfilled all righteousness. All the stories of the Old Testament are ultimately fulfilled in Christ, in his life. And he took that, that infinitely worthy life and he offered it up on the cross in your stead. He said, Father, here am I. 
to offer myself in place of you, should you come to him by faith. He has offered up his life in your stead so that all the things that you should have done are, are done in Christ, offered to you in Christ. And not only that, as he offered up that life, he did something else even more amazing in that. He took on himself your sin. All those thoughts, all those actions, all those attitudes, every single one of them, as horrible as they might be, from the beginning of your life to the end, both your sins past, present, and future were put on Christ. And he bore the holy justice of God, the wrath of God. That's what Scripture says when it says the wrath of God. It doesn't mean like your sort of wrath or my sort of wrath when we're angry because we're not getting through traffic quickly enough. That's not God's wrath. God's wrath is a holy, pure justice. He is angry with us in a holy, just way for our sin. He wouldn't be God. He wouldn't be just if he simply brushed our sin under the carpet. He must deal with it. And so on the cross, he poured out that wrath on Christ. He poured out the wrath that you deserve, that I deserve. He took that same wrath and he focused it on his perfect son. And he, and he did not hold back in pouring out his wrath on Christ. Christ bore that. He died. He suffered and died and offered it up himself as a perfect sacrifice for you. And that's the gospel. That's the good news. And the good news always calls for a response. It's never meant to be just proclaimed and left out there. It always says, therefore, don't be foolish. Therefore, don't depend on yourself. Therefore, don't live in your sin. Run away, repent, and turn from your sin. And put your faith in Christ who died for you and rose again victorious on the third day over sin and death. And that's an essential aspect of the gospel as well. Christ conquered. He is victorious over sin and death. And should you put your faith in him, you are victorious in him over your sin and over death. And death and sin no longer have a sting to harm you. You are forgiven. You're free. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. The proper response to the gospel is to repent. And, and maybe you are not at that place yet, and that's okay. We want to exhort you. We want to talk about the gospel. We want to present it to you, but we are also patient because we know our God is patient. He, he is kind. Uh, he, he is kind in our lives, and he's kind in your life for an important purpose. He is patient with you for an important purpose. He wants to draw you to himself. So his patience with you, his kindness with you certainly comes from his character, but it is also meant to draw you to say, think about it. And we want you to think about it. We want to create a church that's a safe place for you to think about it because that's how God is. But also we want to say, think about it and respond to it. And, and even today, say, Lord, forgive me. I'm sorry. I'm sorry I've sinned and I, and I see who you are in Christ and I see what you've done for me and, and I... And I want to put my faith in Christ, not myself. You just have to simply say those things. Confess with your mouth, believe in your heart, and you will be saved. It's straightforward. The gospel calls for a response for all of us, though, whether we've already been at that place of initially receiving him and being brought into his family. It calls for all of our response to say, yes, Lord, this is my life, and now I turn afresh again from self 
and sin in my own ways, and I turn to you once again, Jesus. You're my Savior. You're my King. You're my life. This great gospel, this glorious gospel is the power of God. It's our ability to live a manner of life worthy of the gospel. And that's so important to get in this passage when Paul talks about living worthy of the gospel. This is a life that is flowing from the gospel. And that's what the, what the Apostle Paul does throughout Scripture. He calls us to live worthy of the gospel. And, and he at times uses different words to express that. But what he does before he does that in, in his letters, and we see this general pattern in Scripture because this is God's pattern, he first first moves in our lives in a gracious way. He presents the gospel. So the Apostle Paul presents the good news, the good news of grace to say, this is all done on your behalf. You have not done anything in regards to the gospel except to contribute your own sin. It's all been done for you. Should you receive it, it is fully yours. And the grace of God is yours. God loves you in Christ. This is who you are in Christ. And there's a wonderful truth that flowing from that gospel is this power to live the life flowing from the victory of God in the gospel, flowing from the grace of God in the gospel, flowing from the glory of God displayed in the gospel, flowing from our union with Christ in the gospel, because the scriptures teach us an amazing thing that when we place our faith in Christ, we are united with Christ as if we ourselves had died on that cross with him. And our old man died. That old man was crucified. On that cross, it was put to death. It received the judgment it deserves. We receive the judgment we deserve on that cross in Christ. And then on the third day, he rose again, victorious over sin and death. Sin and death can no longer hold on to him. And we are united with him, and that new life is our life. We are united with him, so now we live in the resurrection. That's our life. And this truth about our union with Christ and all these other things that flow from the gospel, our righteousness before God, the grace of God, all these things are what produce in us the ability to live a manner of life worthy of the gospel. And that's the pattern of Scripture. If you look through Paul's letters in particular, he structures it always this way, the gospel first, the grace of God first. And now because the gospel has touched your lives, this is who you are, thus you shall walk. That's how it works. That's important to hear. You cannot put the cart before the horse in this, in this way. So when he talks about the manner of life worthy of the gospel, those are the sort of things that Paul is getting at, that we live in, the, in its power. We are affected by its truth. The pattern of the gospel of death and new life is to be our pattern in life, and we are constantly faced with temptations to take ourselves, in a sense, off the cross, to reassert our sinful nature, and to live again according to the old man. And Paul says, no, don't do that. That's not who you are. You've been crucified with Christ. You no longer live. Now live in this new life. Turn away from this, from this pattern. And so we are called to, to continually remember the gospel, to live in it, to live according to its pattern, to live according to our union with Christ, to die to sin and self and live in and live to Christ. Here in the section, he says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. It's interesting that that phrase, your manner of life, um, in some, some Bibles, some English Bibles, it talks about conducting yourselves. The word, uh, the original word in the original language actually is a word that means to act as a citizen. It's one word. It's to citizen. Uh, and it just the reason that it's different here is because we don't, ha we don't use that word that way, so it doesn't make sense. Um, but it says only citizen 
yourself worthy of the gospel of Christ. The reason Paul, I believe, used this word citizen to act as a citizen is because he was speaking to Philippians, and the the city of Philippi was founded as a Roman colony. It was uh, filled with a lot of veterans of the Roman army, and and, uh, the majority of the population would have been veterans, and, and they understood that their citizenship as Romans was an important thing. They, they saw themselves as citizens of Rome, and, and, and we don't necessarily appreciate what that means, what that meant for them. That this was their identity. This was their highest privilege, to be a citizen of Rome. Rome was the greatest authority, the most powerful nation on earth. It, it was a, a wonderful, in many ways, a wonderful empire. So for them to be citizens meant so much. And so Paul is saying, guys, there's a citizenship that's greater than that of Rome. There's a citizenship that's more worthy. There's a place more worthy than Rome. And that is in Christ. And so your citizenship in the gospel is, who, is, is your identity, not your Roman citizenship as much. So let your manner of life, let your citizenship, let your conduct, let your identity, let your way of life be worthy of the gospel. It's to be our identity. It's to be our citizenship. It's to be how we understand ourselves. We're to live worthy of the gospel. Napoleon Bonaparte once said, a man becomes the uniform he wears. A man becomes the uniform he wears. And I I think that's an apt description. I remember talking once to an army officer about the power of putting on the uniform. That putting on that, that army uniform had this Tremendous power to create a sense of self, to create this idea that I am an army officer. And it was this compelling pull to be everything that an army officer is supposed to be when you put on that uniform. And we as Christians are to put on the uniform of Christ. We're to put on that gospel uniform. We are to wear that uniform and we are to see ourselves that way, that we are ones that belong to Christ. The gospel is our proclamation. The gospel is our power. It's who we are. We are to live as soldiers worthy of our uniform, the gospel, our manner of life. Our manner of life must be worthy of the gospel. So let me ask you a question. When somebody encounters you, can they tell that you have the uniform on? Can they tell that you have that uniform on, that uniform of the gospel? Is it your identity? Does it come through in some way? Who you are, what you say, how you act, how you treat them, how you respect them, love them, how you're patient with them, how you're for them, how you stand for righteousness, humbly but firmly. Do they see the uniform? Is it your life? Is it your identity? Paul goes on in this passage, and I don't know if I'm going to get to everything. There's a lot of good stuff in this passage, but he goes on to talk about that, that as we live this life, manner, uh, manner of life worthy of the gospel, as we live in light of the gospel, there's fruit produced. He says, so that, so the result of a manner of life worthy of the gospel is so that whether I come and see you or am absent... And he's been talking about that, that, he, that he's in jail, he can't see them, but he expects to be with them. So whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you. And what is he to hear of you? That you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. As you live a life 
a manner of life worthy of the gospel. Now, Paul's going to talk about what that looks like. He's going to talk about it right here. He's going to talk about it in the next number of paragraphs. Actually, even to the end of this letter, he's going to talk about specifically what that looks like. But here he's saying that it looks like this. It means standing firm in one spirit with one mind. Standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. When the gospel changes our lives, when it affects our lives, when it empowers our lives, it creates in us a number of things. It creates in us the power and the ability and the desire to stand firm in it, to stand firm, to resist, to resist the onslaught of the enemies of our souls, the enemies, whether they be human enemies, whether they be spiritual, whether they be our own flesh, to stand firm against the press of the enemies. But that, but that standing firm, that standing firm is, is a one that is in unity with other Christians. It's with one mind. It's with one spirit that we stand firm together. The gospel is the basis of our unity. If I were to hold up this cup of water and I asked someone from this side of the room and someone from this side of the room to, to come over here and reach for the cup. I've heard this illustration before. I hope it serves. As they come from opposite sides of the room together to reach for the cup, what happens? They come together. They get closer. And as they reach for the one cup, they are right next to each other. When we live in the gospel, the good news of Christ together, as we live in it and from it and for it, we come together around it. There's a unity that flows from a life lived around the gospel. And it, it brings us together to stand side by side, to be of one mind and one spirit. And there's that idea of standing firm together. So we, we lock arms and we stand firm on the gospel. We have a zeal in our hearts to protect the gospel to, to remind each other of the gospel, to, to call to one another, to stand firm. And how do we effectively do that? We call by sharing the truth in love, Scripture talks about, sharing the gospel with one another, reminding each other. Remember these words. Remember Christ has died for you. He's risen for, for you. You have life in him. This is who you are. We call to one another. We lock arms. We stand firm, and we resist the onslaught in our own hearts. We resist the onslaught of, of the world. We resist the onslaught of of the enemy, but also we strive side by side. And Paul uses these two terms to, I believe, communicate there's two aspects to being drawn together, to living a manner of, worthy, uh, life, manner of life worthy of the gospel. There's two aspects. There's the defensive aspect. We call, we bolster one another, we stand firm, but we also strive side by side. And, and that word for striving side by side is a word that would also have been used in uh, to describe athletic competitions. It's a word that Paul uses elsewhere in the letter. It, the, the Philippians, it's translated later to labor side by side. It's a word that actually captures um, the side-by-sideness and the work together. It means to, to, it's all one word in the original language. It means to work together, to contend together, to labor together, to strive side-by-side -side together, to be a team working for the goal together to strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. And when it says faith of the gospel, it means faith of the gospel like we might speak of our Christian faith. It's, it's the, the content, it's the, the entirety of our, of our Christianity, the faith of the gospel. 
And so we are a strive together. And what that means is we strive together for the faith of the gospel in many ways. And there's a natural, natural thing that happens in our lives when we understand the gospel, when, we, when the gospel grips our hearts. It, it not only gives us this passion to stand firm together and to bolster one another, but it gives us a passion to see the gospel produce fruit outside, to advance. We want to see the gospel advance. We want to see it advance in our own hearts, in our own lives, and who we are as a church. We want to see it advance in our communities. We want to see it go out there and, and touch lives and change lives. God promised Abraham that your descendants, those of faith, that means all believers, would be like the sand on the seashore, like the stars in the sky. I think sometimes we think of that verse and we think about this promise and we think that maybe the promise is more like this. I promise that your descendants will be like sand dollars on the seashore and shooting stars in the sky. Why do I make that difference? Because if you look for sand dollars, they're hard to find on the seashore. If you look for shooting stars, they come occasionally across the sky. And sometimes we think of our ability to impact other people to be like that. There's only going to be a few. There'll be some sand dollars we'll pick up here and there. There'll be some shooting stars here and there. But that's not the promise. Like sand on the seashore. How much sand is on the seashore? A lot. Innumerable grains of sand on the seashore. How many stars in the sky? Now think, this is a promise given to Abraham in the day before electric lights. And when you went outside at night, there was no light pollution. And, and on a moonless night, if you looked up at the sky, it would look like there were more stars in the sky than darkness. And so this promise is given to Abraham, look, your descendants will be like the stars in the sky. Billions and billions, that's right, as Carl Sagan said. It, it, there'll be... Just innumerable amount. That's the promise to Abraham. And that must, that must affect our minds. That must affect our mission. It must affect our perception of our society. Yes, there's sin out there. There's darkness out there. But the promise of God is that the descendants of Abraham would be innumerable. And for all we know, that may mean that every single unbeliever that's around us, every single loved one, every single family member, every single friend of ours will come to Christ in their lifetime. There's no reason not to expect that, given the promise. So let's, let's do it the other way around, okay? Let's not think, well, it's going to be few, but maybe it will be big. Let's think, it's going to be big. Well, maybe it will be few. That will be up to the Lord. But I'm expecting big because of the promises of God. And when the gospel affects your heart, when you've been touched by the gospel, and you see, you see that Christ has won the right to be worshipped and enjoyed by all, it propels you to want to see the gospel advance. Abraham Kuyper said this, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. And that is to be our heart as we reach out, as we seek to, to bring the blessings of Christ in our jobs and in our neighborhoods, when we proclaim Christ and evangelize that people might come under his reign. These things propel us, and we're to do it side by side. You guys know the story of the Battle of Thermopylae? Maybe you've seen the movie 300. I'm not necessarily recommending that movie. It's based on the battle. It's a little bit of high drama. Men in Speedos. Um, I don't recommend it necessarily. But anyhow, the battle, they didn't wear Speedos. The battle, the Battle of Thermopylae is a famous battle. Uh, it is a battle that was, happened about 500 B.C. 
And the Persian army was coming to once again uh, conquer Greece. And this Persian army, it marched over from Persia, which was far away, uh, was uh, the, the sources from that day claim that it was a million men in their army. A million men army. That's a huge army for that day. And they, the Greeks came together and decided on a strategy, and it involved a, a navy, a naval uh, exercise, and it involved something on the land. And what they did, they decided that they would meet this million-man army at the pass at Thermopylae. And, it, and I think we have a picture there. Thermopylae uh, was this narrow pass that you had to go through. There were mountains on one side and the ocean on the other, and it was very narrow. If you visit there today, it's been filled in, but, but it was very narrow. And there was actually a wall there at the time, so there was a narrow space. So they decided to send the very best Greek soldiers to that pass to hold off this million-man army. And that's where the Spartans come in. They sent the Spartans in. They sent also other Greeks. There were only 7,000 men. Only 7,000 men went to meet a million-man army. How could they ever think to stop a million-man army? Because they knew how to strive side by side. They knew how to cooperate. And the Greek army was a powerful army, much like the Roman army was powerful. The Roman army, its power came in its ability to strive side by side. My ancestors, being the Celts, were bigger and stronger and faster than, than the Romans. The Romans, if you look in history, they were sh fairly short. Uh, and, why do, and, and my ancestors loved to just run into battle directly on their own. It was a bunch of individuals fighting the Roman army, and they would just slaughter them. The Romans knew how to fight side by side. The Greeks knew how to fight side by side. I think we have a, another slide to show. They were trained warriors. They wore armor, but their armor was meant to protect not only them, but to protect them as a group. And they would lock, they would lock shields basically side by side. And they had these long pikes, 7 to 14 feet long, that they would hold out. And they would they'd lay over the other guy's shoulders. And as the, the army, other army came in, the, be they the Persians or the crazy Celts, they, they just were no match for this. You wouldn't get past the pikes. Not only did they have the pikes, they had short swords. And if you know the story, they held off the million-man army for seven days. They piled the bodies high. And it wasn't until that they were betrayed and somebody led the Persian army around the mountains to the back of them that they gave in. And if you know the story, the Spartans ended up staying the last ones to go, only 300 Spartans to the very end gave their lives. They were able to do that because they knew how to strive side by side. And if God calls us to be part of bringing in this harvest around us, if you run out there like a crazy Celt, you're not going to be successful. You need to be side by side with others. You need to learn how to walk side by side. And we as a church are geared that way purposefully. The reason that we come together on Sundays, the reason that we have small groups, the reason that for all that we do, we do it as teams is because we know where to strive side by side. And when we strive side by side, we will be successful in God's grace. So the question is, are you striving side by side? Are you in a small group? And in that small group, are you getting to know the people in that small group? Are you locking arms with those people? Can you name those people who are on your left and on your right? So you're not just attending the group. You're not just sitting back. Now, there's time to do that. I don't mean to say you get to know, get to warm up the people, all that. That's, here are those qualifiers. 
But there's a time to get to know them and them to get to know you and for you to lock arms together and to stand firm together and to strive together. So our care groups are not only geared for your encouragement and your building up to stand firm, but also for you to go out. Our care groups are intended to be a place where you can share what's going on in your life as you strive out there, as you interact with people, as you pray for your neighbors, as you reach out to your neighbors and family. To be a place where you can pray together, pray for one another, and where it helps to come alongside to do things together, to have gatherings, to have a party over your house, invite some, some of your friends from small group and invite your neighbors. Bring them all together. Have a Matthew party, as Scripture gives us a picture. Jesus, Matthew comes to Jesus, and what does he do? He throws a party and has all his friends come to meet Jesus. It's a great strategy. Have a party over your house. Bring some of your care group friends or other Christian friends and invite your other friends to come to meet Jesus who lives amongst his people. Do it side by side. Strive side by side together. We are starting Alpha soon, and we cannot do Alpha if we don't strive side by side. So our whole thought about Alpha is not we don't just kind of do this course. We don't just have somebody, we don't just hire somebody to run Alpha for us. We do Alpha together, and, and you are all part of the Alpha team. So our announcements about praying for Alpha are not just like, well, perfunctory things. Well, we just ought to do this. No, it's saying, come on, strive side by side with us. Alpha, our Alpha program will not work apart from your work, apart from your prayer, apart from you inviting friends and neighbors and loving them, and, and being in their lives. It won't work. It's merely, Alpha merely works this way. It provides a place for you to bring them, to take the next step, to hear the next thing about Christianity in a way that's non-threatening and, and safe for them. That's how Alpha works. We need you to be side-by-side side with us for that. And, in, and for some of us, if you're so inclined, we'd love for you to be on the Alpha team. We need people to, to be there, to help lead groups, to help prepare desserts. We don't do meals. We do simple desserts. There's a number of things. So talk to Mike, Mike Lilly, about being part of the Alpha team. We are called to strive side by side. As the band comes up, I'm just going to have to quickly go through the remainder of this passage. Part of the context here that Paul's speaking of is that the Philippians live with opposition. And we've talked about that opposition. Their opposition included those around them in their culture, and they were in a culture that uh, sometimes we feel like sore thumbs in our culture. They felt even more so in theirs. You couldn't probably have a normal conversation with your neighbor in that pagan culture without being ostracized. I just was envisioning having a, one of those conversations with your neighbor back in that culture. Can you imagine a conversation like this, like uh, saying to your neighbor, hey, how you doing, Secundus? And they say, oh, great, Demetrius. Hey, Demetrius, you want to go to the theater tonight? There's something planned at the theater. And you say, oh, so goodness, maybe. Well, what is it? Well, it's the play Octavia. Oh, I heard that was pretty good, Octavia. What's it about? Well, it's about the emperor and his love affairs. And, you know, it's going to be really good if you know what I mean. Well, um, oh, maybe I can do something with you after the theater, uh, Segundus. Yeah. They've got the dedication down at the Temple of Isis. We're going to be dedicating the pigs and at the... Uh, they're going to have a pig roast, and there'll be lots of women. It should be really good, if you know what I mean. Oh, well, uh, I don't know. Maybe we can do something else some other time. What's wrong with you? You used to be lots of fun. What's gotten into you? You're not one of those Christians, are you? They're the worst. That's what it would have been like to live in their day. Now, we face that a little bit, but not very much compared to them. And sometimes those conversations would have turned a lot worse than that. We know Paul was beaten and thrown in jail. 
So they lived with real opposition, and Paul seeks to encourage them in this, that this opposition ultimately is from the Lord. This is from God. And that they're standing firm in the gospel, living in the gospel and advancing the gospel is ultimately a sign. It's a line drawn in the sand. It's a line in the sand. And, and Paul talks about this elsewhere, that, that their life in Christ is, is an aroma of Christ. And this line in the sand, this aroma of Christ that comes out of your life as you stand firm and as you strive for some, it will be sweet. They will smell it and it'll be life to life. It will be, yes, I want that. I'm turning from my sin. I want to know about Jesus. Tell me more. And it's a sign to their salvation for believers. That's what Paul says here. But for others, it's a sign of their destruction because when they see it, they say, that stinks. That's the worst thing I've ever heard. I want nothing to do with that. And so we, we are used by God to draw this line in the sand. And we trust that God will have mercy and draw many to himself. But that was what Paul sought to encourage them with. And what it means, it means that there's suffering. We live in this world. This is not our home. And to live in this world is to be around our enemies in our own hearts, the devil, the world, there'll be suffering. And this is from God as well. He's granted us not only to believe and benefit from him in believing and to have all the promises and joys in that, but also to suffer for his name. We will suffer as we live a life, a manner of life worthy of the gospel. So in closing, let us, hear the word of God. Let us hear the wonder of the gospel. Let us be strengthened in it and in its gift and in its power that we might be propelled to to live a life worthy of the gospel, that we might stand firm together, that we might strive, that we might be used by him to see some of those grains of sand and those stars in the sky be established in his grace and also to suffer for his namesake, to show that this Gospel is the ultimate determiner of all things. And he will be with us just as he was with Paul in his struggle as we live this glorious life around the gospel. Let's pray.